interrupt this program to bring you the utility player's classified results. Adelaide Crows, 37. Melbourne, 88. Brisbane Broncos, 10. South Sydney Rabbitohs, 28. Tommy Fleetwood, 3 under. Ty, 29th. Rory McIlroy, 2 under. Ty, 33rd. Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. One day, Rory, I will come on this show and say the Adelaide Crows have won an <laughs> AFL match. It will happen, Austra- <laughs> the Australian rules gods will be good to us, I promise, I promise you and everyone out there that we will win a game at some point. <laughs> yes, but that week is not this week, and, it, and I'm going to put it out there, it might not be next week either, but yeah, tough for the Crows, but it's, it's a weird one because... Crows and the Broncos have both been so poor ever since we started this con- uh, this podcast. And maybe those of you out there that aren't so in tune with what's happening with Australia's, Australian sport must just think we support absolutely rubbish sides. But traditionally, the Broncos and the Crows are both pretty good. Like They've won, won tournaments, they've won trophies, they're normally competitive teams. And I think they're both in this kind of weird limbo period where they're not playing the best the best in their respective forms of fitty, as they call it, over there. And, and people at home must just think, God, those teams are rubbish, but I, I promise they're not. I promise they're not. Well, especially the Broncos. I mean, for those who may not follow rugby league particularly closely, if you think of Australian rugby league teams, I'd imagine in terms of the biggest market, the Broncos is one that first comes to mind. That maroon shirt, you know, that's what people sort of picture. Well, certainly when I sort of started following rugby league from afar, they certainly have a, a, a proud history. The, the Crows, maybe not quite so much. I mean, they did make the grand final, say, two or three years ago, uh, just losing out. Um, but yeah, certainly not not always the deluge of the league, which is certainly what they are this year. Um, and uh, and overall, coming back to, well, I was going to say, slightly close to home, but not the other side of the Atlantic or the other side of the Pacific for... Uh, from Australia in uh, the US PGA Championship. Uh, Fleetwood at one point looked like he might have had an opportunity. Rory certainly never got into it, but at the end of the day, it was another American in, in Colin Morikawa who who won it sort of coming out from the field. Uh, I think he had an eagle on the 16th, um, coming out from a pack of about seven players who were all on sort of a 10 under, I think it was. And that eagle sort of was what separated him at the end. And his first major, you know, the new up and coming name in, in world golf. Yeah, and, and some drive that was on the on the drivable par four sixteenth to put it to what ten feet or something off the tee was 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 pretty special. But it was an interesting one, um, kind of following the US PGA this week. There's as we talked about on the podcasting either last week or the week before how it's exciting in golf at the moment having g- these tournaments and having so many different names that can win. And I think over the weekend there was loads of names that were floating around there. Bryson was in there at one point, Dustin Johnson was in there at one point, even Paul Casey, someone nobody picked, actually ended up finishing second. It was in in the conversation at one point. But I think actually Morikawa, although being in around there, was maybe one of the people that was being talked about less going into the final rounds. And I didn't really consider Morikawa when I was thinking when I was watching it and thinking of the eventual winners. But actually 
I don't know why everyone missed him because he's played so well since golf resumed and he's he's won and he's been in that kind of competitive zone right over the past few months. And I'm, maybe I feel we we should have should have called it earlier because he has been on such good form and he said he was in that pack going into the last day. Well, I certainly missed a trick and going into the last day. I, I put a little flutter on. Uh, someone I actually mentioned to you that I thought someone would come out of the pack kind of from sort of four or five or six groups back because the way the wind had blown in the afternoons and really dried out the greens and made it really difficult for the last couple of groups on every single day of, of the tournament. So I thought that, that Dustin Johnson, who had the, the league games last day, really had his work cut out. I just went for the wrong American and Daniel Berger. I, didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't even look at Morikawa. And I think it's just, he is so fresh to the scene. And, and we see over the years, we've seen the numbers of athletes and across sports, you know, come racing onto the scene and then sort of fade away. And it's it's maintaining that ability to, to win and, and that and, and sort of translating your talent across sort of sustained periods. And so there's inevitably the hangover effect of people going, this is just a fast start and he's sort of playing on instinct or she's playing on instinct and then they fall away. So I can totally understand why. And I think probably right now for him, he's in this sweet spot where he can just go around, about and play his game with not really any pressure because people are going to kind of keep saying well he's new he's going to be able to maintain it he's got a major under his belt now that might change things but I think as it stands this this season there's this sweet spot for him yeah and I think you're right there I think that he was so fresh-faced and I think I've certainly I mean he's had a good year but certainly it's been since we kind of returned to golf that he's really shone Uh, so you kind of think well excellent young player fantastic talent for the future but with all those great names in the field that we've talked about probably wouldn't have enough to to triumph at the end of the week would have been what people would have thought. But I think what we're seeing with golf now and what they keep talking about when you listen to like these pundits and these golf experts is that these players, and particularly these American players, that are getting involved in like the college golf circuit and, and all these kind of pre-professional steps you have to go through. It's so competitive now. And they are getting trained to play in this kind of competitive tour environment from a young age from a college golf age so they so these young players come onto the tour now with almost the ability of knowing how to win in high pressure environments intense environments and and kind of this tour style environment they're, they're already got an exposure to it and they're more potentially more used to it now than than players used to be so players seem much more, more able to come onto the tour and be competitive and win almost straight away which people talked about you took a few years to get used to the the kind of quality of the tour but that doesn't seem to be a thing anymore um, and you said, obviously, it will change with a major. Sometimes it can change for the better, but actually a lot of the time it can change for the worse. We see a lot of players win their first major and then struggle after that, whether it's the hangover of winning that first major or now turning up to major championships with people watching you and say, well, you're a major champion. You should be in the in in the running every single time. So that, that can affect players in different ways. I mean, we saw someone like Graham McDowell kind of fall off the edge for a while after he won at Pebble Beat. And it'll be interesting to see what happens to Morikawa now because he is so young, whether actually being so young will help him or whether actually being so young with so much pressure will will potentially be a hindrance. Well, you touched on the environment that these American athletes get through the college system over there, and, and we're going to come on to, a, to a, a topic that kind of does encapsulate that a little bit. Um, but before we do that, I just want to introduce that our guest later in the show uh, was coming from a slightly different perspective than other guests we've had. We'll, we'll be delighted to welcome Charles Patterson, uh, Sky Sports reporter um, in Scotland, who does a lot of great work in, in the world of journalism and, and reporting uh, and getting an insight of, of what that actually is like. Uh, a lot of us who follow, whether it's Sky Sports or BT Sports, see, our, see or talk sport or 
whatever medium hear from the reporters and the journalists, but what actually goes into making that possible and, and how, how does it all go about. So really fascinating chat coming up with him in a bit. But referring back to that sort of American college system you talk about, that's very much an American model. And the other arm to that American model uh, when you come to the professional sports or the college sports is around salary caps. Now, this week, uh, it was announced by the EFL clubs for certainly League Two and League One that there's going to be a salary cap put in place going forward. I think it's one point. I think it's one point five million on wages in in, in League Two and two point five million in League One, roughly something around that. So, with that in mind, Roy, I really want to know what you're interested in what your take on this is because in American sports it seems to have worked. When I first came across the concept and I started following it, particularly American football, but American sports sports in in basketball as well baseball doesn't have caps i i thought it was sort of very foreign and completely ridiculous and it kind of as i've got my head around it makes more sense if we talk about not wanting the rich to get richer and wanting to have a competitive a fair fair competitive landscape for all clubs or players or athletes or whatever to compete with on the same stage and how to start from the same footing and to me that kind of makes sense because it stops teams or individuals getting monopoly on the market now the one downside to that is that there is no promotional relegation in in american sports because there is a financial model where revenue is shared and 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 money is distributed equally amongst the teams to have the same salary caps and everyone has the same starting point so then you when then if that's the case is if people go up and down leagues what what happens there that doesn't happen in american sport and i think fundamentally american sport misses out massively there but Going away from that, do you think a salary cap as a general concept is a good model to implement in sport? The immediate, my re- immediate reaction to hearing this was not said whether the salary cap was the right thing or the not thing, but was how, how can they have a salary cap in two of the professional leagues, but not in the other two professional leagues? Instantly, that in my mind will create disparity across the league. And you said the best thing about the salary caps in America and the way it works is that it stops the rich getting richer and the not successful clubs kind of getting poorer and this wealth in class and financial wealth appears that we are seeing in football right now, especially with the kind of top six to 10 teams compared to everyone else. And it stops that. But from what I can see with the, the system with the EFL, it's almost it's almost going to increase that. It's basically saying, well, the teams in the bottom two tiers are going to limit how much they can spend on each player, where the teams in the in the top division, free reign, spend as much as you want. And it kind of feels, well, any half-decent championship player that gets relegated and then has to try to fall in line with this cap over time, and they said it might not happen instantly, I can't quite sure what the system is, but they eventually have to fall in line with the cap. Why would they then stay and play for a League One team when they could get paid more money to go to the championship or go to France or go elsewhere? The, the football market now is so massive and so vast and it's so spanning across won the full professional league in England, but then also the wider leagues across Europe and all the European leagues are so intertwined. You think, how can how can you impose it on two leagues and expect them to then be competitive with all the other leagues that are reigning free on, on a free market system, a free money system? And when wealth and money is so important in football these days, we talk a lot about Scottish football. One of the biggest things that holding Scottish football back is a lack of wealth compared to its its closest neighbours within Europe. And it just, it to me, I know it's not quite what you asked, but in this sense around football, it doesn't seem to make sense. Now, 
you said whether in general whether I like a, the idea of a salary cap. I think yes, in by the premise I do because of that. Again, that issue we're seeing now with this total kind of wealth gap that we are seeing within sports like football that is coming to potentially ruin football. We even saw in rugby a bit with Toulon and how much they could just spend and basically had that kind of team around 2014, 2015 with Johnny Wilkinson and the Armitage brothers, etc. and Brian Habana and they basically could have this amazing team that absolutely walked the, the European Championship. And you think, well, it, if it's money creating that success rather than talent or hard work, it, it feels a bit off. And if you could have a system where the money was shared more evenly or controlled better, where you, teams were going to have to use other means, then you see it seems fair and potentially something that is a positive move for sport. But it would have to be done kind of as a blanket thing across all sport. And in football, it has to be across all European football. And then, But then I'm even batting myself now, the other side of that, well, part of me likes getting to watch a Champions League semi-final, Barcelona versus Man City or Bayern Munich, and having just this wealth of the top players in the world out on the pitch playing playing against each other. And part of that can only happen is because there are a small percentage of clubs that can afford to do that and can afford to attract all the top players at, at the same time rather than think, well, we've got a cap, so we're going to invest in a world-class striker, a world-class centre-back and a world-class right winger but the rest are then going to be kind of league level or decent level but we can't afford to then get them world class because of our salary cap and you think well actually part of the joy of seeing these big european fixtures is having the world's best players all on one pitch so there's a lot of elements to it and i I, I, i've in in talking there gone from one side to the other and i'm really not sure you know me and i love team building like I love team build. I love the art of team building, and I don't think that exists in football. If I'm honest, I think you could argue that you know that you know you need a, a team needs a holding midfielder, so they went out and got one. You could argue they've gone playing three at the back and four at the back, or, or five at the back, or whatever. So therefore, they need a certain type of defender. You can argue you're going to play four four two or whatever else. You need a certain type of that. That's not team building at the top, top level. Because all you do is you just go, oh, we'll chuck whatever money at whatever player and it doesn't matter, you know, realistically. And for me, you know, management, I think we may have touched on this previously, management and coaching and, and what have you and team building is just, it's just not lost. I think when we were talking about Guardiola a month or so ago, you know, he just goes in and he brings up certain players with him. You know, I've seen it with Mourinho in the past and what have you. They go to these big clubs and they just go, all right, bring it. You're not building a team. You're not building a, a philosophy or whatever else. You, you're, just, you're just throwing money at the problem. And therefore, I think bringing in a salary cap is then, then actually makes it more about that. It doesn't, it makes it more about actually, I mean, this is a team game and building a team and, and building a squad and you know there's a there's a much more interesting intricate level there of as you say well you can only allocate your funds to certain you know to certain areas and, and they're making the decision of whether that is a, a center forward a goalkeeper and a holding midfielder you know and, and through the spine of the team whether that is wing backs because you're going to play with wheel width you know suddenly we're seeing a wholly different creative way of of teams having an identity and and teams being formed rather than it just being a case of, Oh, we're just going to throw money at this. Yeah. There is something great about the best players in the world playing each other in the Champions League semi-final, 
but for me, and this is very much my own opinion, is in every sport, international sport should be the pinnacle. It should. And while clubs have, you know, top-end clubs, and we're talking only maybe about three or four or five, can just go and buy the best players in the world, then international sport in football is not going to be the pinnacle. And I think that's a real shame. I, I, I really, I really do. And I think not, you know, how many times certainly over here in the UK when it comes to an international break during the Premier League or SPL season, people just go, oh, and kind of switch off from football. And so you don't see that in other sports. You don't see that in other sports. And and it is, you know, going back to American sports, it's one of my big bugbears with American sports is they play sports that pretty much only they play in their own country and then call themselves the world champions <laughs> for winning the Super Bowl or for, for, for winning the... You know, whatever it World might be, series. World Series <laughs> or winning, you know, whatever it might be, and it just doesn't, you know, that doesn't seem right to me either. But I, I think everyone knows in football the money is getting ridiculous, and the wages are getting ridiculous, and the transfer fees are getting ridiculous to a point where it's going to it's going to cripple it. And so, how can we help support something that makes it fairer for people? And actually, you know, you lo- everyone loves it when they see a different name on a trophy, or if it was Leicester. So why are we so against making a system that allows more people to have a, an equal playing field to then have a more intriguing and interesting brand of product? I certainly see both sides of it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit on my fence and say I, I get both sides and I don't know in theory which one I'd actually prefer, but this is the one we've got, so I'm going to enjoy it while it's here. Well... Someone who didn't sit on their fence this week was Ronnie O'Sullivan. <laughs> no, uh, absolutely not. Ronnie O'Sullivan has made some, some, depending on who you speak to, some incredibly uh, disparaging and quite rude comments, or speak to someone else, some quite refreshing and honest comments from a, from a professional athlete, rather than just spinning media jargon, and basically said that when he was asked about how successful it's himself, uh, John Higgins and and Mark Williams had been in, in the last almost quarter decade, he basically turned around and said, well, that's because people who are coming into snooker now and the up and coming are crap. And there is absolutely no talent. And without his arm or his leg, he could still be a top 50 player in the world. And that snooker and the young people coming had to serious had a serious look at themselves because they are just that bad, to quote Ronnie O'Sullivan. And Roy, is this refreshing or is this particularly rude and should have no place oh i don't know i don't know i mean i, I love i've i've always loved ronnie o'sullivan right and i know a lot of people don't and i totally get why they don't but i think he's just brilliant for snooker a snooker which is a sport which traditionally seems a bit stuffy and a bit kind of stiff upper lip he's kind of brought showmanship and bravado and just like an unbelievable amount of talent to the game and just made snooker so much more exciting for so many people. And, and I think he is honestly one of the best sportsmen we've in terms of natural talent at their sport, one of the best we've ever seen. And like when he did things like say, Oh, that guy's not very good. I could beat him left-handed. And everyone said, you can't say that. And then he went and beat out and beat him left-handed. I think just stuff like that is amazing because he is that talented. He is that good. He can say these things. And, and, Part of me feels like there is a bit of that within this. And, and, and if, he, if he does see that, I mean, he's going to know much better than we do. And if he does see the players coming through aren't in just the same breath that the likes of him and the likes of Higgins and Williams in this class, and then obviously it would have been Henry and Stephen Davis and everyone before that. If he thinks they're not as good, then he's got a right to say so. I just maybe, maybe it's just the wording of it that makes me think, oh, come on, Ronnie. 
like if you say, oh, to be honest, I just don't think that the quality of players coming through as they used to be, and even honestly, the players actually aren't that good compared to maybe generations before. You say, oh, fair enough, you've got your right to say that. But the kind of, I would have to lose an arm and a leg to pull out the pull out the top fifteen. Yeah, I'm sure he's having a laugh. That is a bit like, oh, like, come on, that's a wee bit of a low blow. But I think it's Ronnie. I think he's earned the right to say such things because he has so much talent and. Because when he has said things like that before, he has backed it up and he has gone and done it. And he has proven that he was the right thing to say. I mean, I think I think I heard this morning that, and I can't remember who it was or what particular position they're in, but there was there was a reasonably high snooker official in, of, of, of someone in sort of power within the game who, when asked about this, said, well, I can't disagree with Ronnie. You know, so it's not like people are coming out and completely condemning him within even his own sports and saying that he's, you know, they're kind of agreeing with him. And I think there is something kind of refreshing about it. Um, and and if you know, if I was a young up and coming snooker player, I'd be really intrigued to see what people think about that. You know, and think about his his comments there, and whether that galvanizes a fire under them, whether that kind of makes them sort of tiptoe away from it. But you know, let's call a spade a spade, and that doesn't happen enough. And and I, and I and I don't think you know, I don't think it's a case of you know Ronnie building up his own ego here. You know, he's not sort of you know telling himself as I'm the greatest. You know, he 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 clearly you know, said there was a number of other people. And I think the, even the, the journalist at the time who asked him, I think he'd, he missed someone out. Maybe it was Mark Williams. And he and he sort of said, and Mark Williams as well. You know, so it wasn't just like, oh, me and everyone else. He was saying that this generation. So when it's coming from that place, that says to me that there is a an issue here and it's not just a self-aggrandizing prophecy about, about him, the player. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think maybe could have worded it a bit nicer. But then Roddy's not got to where he is worrying about what other people think of him and wording things to make people happy. So And he's going to keep doing that. So I think given all the things we've loved about Ronnie and the kind of the things that make Ronnie great and the things that make Ronnie Ronnie, we've got to take sometimes maybe slightly more brash way of wording it like this. But as you said, yeah, if they're not as good, say they're not as good. And, and it's not like anyone seems to be disagreeing with him. So he seems like he was in his right to say it. So something I'm going to put to you here, Rory, actually, and... And I'm sure that I'm I'm singling you out here because obviously I know you so well. And I'm sure there's a, going to be a large percentage of the British public as well who, who have this stance. And at certain times, certainly I do. So Ronnie O'Sullivan, being British, and us knowing... I think I know what you're going to say. I think I know what you're going to say. And us knowing you know, him as a person, him as a talent, we go, right, I can understand that. If this is an American golfer, <laughs> I knew or, that or this, or, the, or, the, or this is an American athlete, and, and, our, and us Brits who, who, who kind of you know are really patriotic about our sports and, and really patriotic, or you know, if this was a okay, if this is a Scotland, if this was a Scottish footballer, right, and someone says this, you know, and we stick up for them, or I, I, but if it was an English footballer who said it, if this was a, if this was an American athlete of some description, would you be so willing to go? Well, that's that's him. It's great, you know. He's being honest. It's an honest appraisal. He's 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 you know totally in his right to say that. If this is someone that we weren't didn't have such love for and what he's done and comes from a different part of the world, would you, I'm just saying this for you because it's only the two of us here. Would you have the same attitude? I mean, as you're saying this, I think absolutely not. I'm bloody Americans and they always get away with saying things like that. But actually, now I think about it, I think if 
the situation was flipped and you used golf as an example I think it's a good one and if it was we talked a lot about how many good players are coming through in golf but if it was the opposite and actually none of the good players were doing that well none of them were really competing and Tiger and Phil and even like maybe like some like Ernie Els were still just winning all the time and basically Tiger came out and said well yeah it's great I'm winning so much but actually part of it is just the young players are crap and that I could play one-handed and I'd still be in the top 100 in the world. I think I'd say, well, yeah, you're Tiger Woods. You've got the right to say that because you are that good and you know the game so well and you know what it takes to be the top and you clearly see that the players coming through haven't got it. And it's and it's not like it's someone like, if it was someone like, I don't know, like a, I don't know why Patrick Reed came to my head. But... Well, I'll tell you why, Patrick <laughs> Reed, I'm telling you why, because a couple of years ago, Patrick Reed said something about he sees himself as a top five golfer in the world yeah. and got laughed at and got kind of chastised by people for, and I, you know, by all reports, Patrick is not very liked on the tour mm-hmm. because of that. His attitude is kind of potentially like a Ronnie O'Sullivan's one, which is just gets down, believes in his own ability and gets on with it. And is not going to take crap from anyone and just say how he feels. And he doesn't matter if he rubs people up the wrong way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Patrick's certainly not the best golfer in the world, but I don't think his comments at the time saying, He's top five, you know. He believes himself as top five. He's massively outside the realms of possibility. Um, so I, I, I'm assuming that's probably in the back of your mind where maybe you're getting that name from. Yeah, well, I think there, and that potentially why. But I think in that comparison, I think even at the time he probably wasn't the top five, and there certainly was a time where he was up there, but he wasn't a Tiger Woods. And I think to bring give context back to Ronnie O'Sullivan, Ronnie O'Sullivan, I think is pretty much unanimously agreed he is the most talented snooker player to have ever picked up a cue. And I think anyone in snooker would say that. Going, talking about likes of Stephen Henry, Steve Davis, all these top, top players from the world of snooker, they all say in terms of talent, Ronnie is the best. Now, obviously, he potentially hasn't won as much as he could have done in his career, and there's been a lot of battles with his health and his mental state, and they have been very public, and, and he has missed a lot of snooker and obviously always not shown his best because of that. But in terms of raw talent, there's no one who is ever really better than Ronnie. And therefore, I think that is why you can compare him to if Tiger Woods said the same thing and the same thing which was true, you would you would forgive that because Tiger is arguably the best golfer to ever have played. Um, where Patrick Reed, although yes, he was having a great time at the time he said it and there was a time where he actually was a top five player in the world, wasn't the Tiger Woods at that point in his time. He wasn't a Ronnie O'Sullivan now as he is in his career. So I think... If you are the great, one of the greats, you almost earn the right to then make judgment on other people because you know what it takes to become a great and you don't see any of that talent appearing in, in the next generations of players within your sport and you hold the right to then make that judgment. Anyway, well, there are lots of other things going on this week and here's some of our favourite stories from the week. The Utility Players Weekly Roundup. With the SPL returning a couple of weeks ago, Hibs and Rangers currently sit top of the tree with a 100% record. Kilmarnock managed to battle to a 1-1 draw with holders Celtic, uh, and Celtic are already behind the eight ball. In boxing, it was the turn of the women to take over at Eddie Hearn's matchroom fight camp in his backyard, and we saw a terrific fight between Terry Harper and Natasha Jones, which couldn't be split by the judges, a draw which meant Terry Harper retained her title, but surely there'll be a rematch. In England, Rugby Union returns this weekend with the Gallagher English Premiership getting underway. Harlequins take on sale on Friday night as the opening match. It'll be interesting to see what it looks like with no Saracens involved. And we are currently 
seeing the concluding stages of the Europa and the Champions League in Germany and Portugal respectively. The highlight of the opening fixtures was Man City seeing off Real Madrid to make it through to the quarterfinals. This week, we are joined by a slightly different guest. We have got uh, Sky Sports uh, reporter uh, up in Scotland, Charles Patterson, who, for those of us who have Sky Sports and follow Sky Sports News, will have, will have seen his face, uh, sometimes being presented with bacon rolls outside of Ibrox when he has to stand there all day, uh, other times reporting on games for, for Jeff and the boys on a Saturday and leading up to the Scottish and British Opening Golf, as well as a multitude of sports. So, Charles, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, that's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It's... Um... We're, we're delighted to be starting the new football season as well. So I'm actually working for a reason at the moment. Yeah, I can imagine. What 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 has you know, we could have asked everyone what lockdown's been like from them from a sport. What has lockdown been like for a, a reporter who essentially has no sport to report on apart from COVID still here? Well, that that's a good question because at the start we nearly got taken off air, and I mean this is a channel that is in millions of houses and and bars and restaurants across the country and we were very close to not operating at all but there was news happening out there i'm i should strip it back a little bit because it's not just about sport i'm actually a journalist and i I got i I got into the industry to be a journalist i didn't necessarily want to cover sport uh for, for a profession and i was fortunate enough to fall into it so we had to kind of revert to our journalistic tendencies and and report about the news for the first two or three weeks and then when we were right at the heart of lockdown at the start of April, there was a very strong possibility that I might have had to go and, and report on Sky News because there was no sport. The sport was wiped off the map. But because there was a lot of debate about when there might be a return, when when we could see various uh, leagues restarting, and and ultimately there was there was cancellation after cancellation after cancellation uh, week after week, that that required reporters to to, to actually keep keep functioning and I was fortunate you know I live in Edinburgh and I've I've got a back garden so I had a cameraman that came to the house set up in the back garden and I was able to broadcast from my house at the times when we weren't allowed to leave home some of my colleagues weren't that lucky Um, but ultimately there has always been sport and news going on through the course of the last four or five months and folk were interested in it people wanted to know when various football leagues wanted to, were going to restart uh, or some when some football leagues were going to get called as finished as well which was a bit of a controversy through March and April in particular here in Scotland and then it was a case of you know just kind of keeping an eye on the watch to, to see when we might get some kind of live action and fortunately we're now back in a, in a scenario whereby we've seen the English leagues come back successfully we've seen golf come back we've seen cricket come back and now we have football back in Scotland albeit with no supporters so we've kind of been through the dark tunnel and I think we're back out of it but it was a bit odd it has to be said and it was nice to be at home with the family um, because I do a lot of traveling I I, normally I would do about 20-25,000 miles a year on the road and and I'm away most nights uh, covering games or I'm or I'm, you know, on the side of the country. So it was good to be at home for quite a lot of the time, but juggling the, the work-life balance with, with the kids in the house um, whilst I was having to work was a challenge, I think, which most people who have been in a similar position have had to deal with. So we had to just adapt. And now, fortunately, we're kind of getting back to normal. Yeah, and what is that um, that process of recording a recording a piece, recording a, a clip for the, for the telly, whether it's in your back garden, whether it's outside Ibrox with bacon rolls, as Ali mentions, whether it's up in Aberdeen or Inverness when you're at the football stadiums there. What's the process of 
you recording your piece and getting that like back the sky and back to you on the telly and 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 yeah the kind of whole steps involved in getting or making a piece and getting it ready for publishing well we've we changed the way we do our our, our business uh, over the last I've been, I've been doing this job for 15 years and when i started uh, we filmed it, we recorded everything on tapes it was analog tapes and now everything's digital <laughs> show your age um, <laughs> yeah it's show my age that's very true um and i'm not even i'm not even the wrong side of 40 yet so <laughs> it was it was beat, you know digi betamax tapes and things like that and you would have to take the tape back to the office and put it into the tape machine and send it to london and nowadays everything is done remotely we have a little box um which we carry in the back of the, the camera van which essentially allows you to broadcast anywhere in the world. So first thing as a journalist, you've got to have your story, you've got to have your facts, you've got to have your, your sources, everything's got to be correct. And if something's happened, it's generally because you've found out about it or someone's dropped a press release onto your, into your email because people are dropping press releases all the time. The government, sports organizations, clubs, individuals drop their own press releases of course as well so um once you've got the information it's just a quick case of it's you phone your you phone your your, your people in london who work with you and you say look we've got a story get us on at two o'clock get us on at three o'clock cameraman comes puts his camera in the garden presses the button and off you go and because we have this box now that allows us to broadcast pretty much anywhere um in the old days you would see satellite trucks parked outside the houses of parliament and things like that Satellite trucks aren't really used anymore, except for big outside broadcast productions. Um, we can be as mobile as we like. And I've always said, if you gave me a laptop and a cameraman in a box, I could go anywhere on the planet and give you a news story every day for a year. And that's the way it's operated now. And we're getting to the point whereby maybe in a few years' time, it might be even more stripped down. Um, and that's just the process, of, uh, the progress of technology, I guess. But it's definitely changed a lot. It is actually quite straightforward. You can we can be we can press a button on a camera switch it on and we can be live inside five minutes now if we want and that's it done and and, and you can uh, you can tell the world what what they want to know so yeah i mean i find it fascinating that so every kind of story that you 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 know break or you you work on or you you know put in the public domain is is that because a, a team or an individual or an organization has has sent you to your inbox or, or dropped you a text message or whatever have, or you got informants that kind of reports you saying, heads up, this is about to happen. Or, or do you ever get a call from the base in London to say, look, we, Charles, uh, you know, something's coming around. We need you being there. Is it always you sort of reporting to, to London and, 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 the, and the headquarters there or Glasgow, or is it more a case of you're always the one who's having to take the initiative or, or having to sort of constantly put feelers out and badger people and individuals from clubs or sports to, to find out what's going on? It's a bit of both, Ali, to be honest. And that's a nice mix. Um, I mean, I ha my boss lives in London and I see him once a year in, in the flesh or twice a year in the flesh. Um, I don't know when I'm going to see him next, to be honest, because he's not coming up here anytime soon. But I, I mean, I speak to folk all the time in London and they have an idea about what they want the news agenda to be. Um, but equally, so do I. And I, I've been doing this job long enough now. I have quite a strong opinion of what I think re resonates with the audience in Scotland and across the UK. And I have a good idea about what is important. And sometimes my, what my view is might not necessarily correlate with what the news editor wants. And then we have a bit of an argument about it. And I do get phone calls from people I know in the industry. And you, you, you've got 
ultimately people who want publicity. There are a lot of organizations out there who don't want publicity and therefore you have to do a bit of digging around to find out what's going on. So it's a nice mix. One of the things we don't do enough of at the moment, which we used to do a lot of in the past, was do kind of nice in-depth features, documentary style stuff. And I mean, I've made a documentary myself and I had a great time doing it. And it was quite a simple, it was quite a simple process, but it was, it had a, had a real texture to it. It allowed you to go in depth into a story, ask really kind of um, sideways questions that you wouldn't necessarily think about. And you get a lot of pleasure out of that. So there's a different, there's different ways of, of doing it and different ways in which news comes to you, but then you can create the news yourself. Um, and you see news organizations banging on about a particular agenda. And then suddenly that becomes a, a topical issue. And that that's credit to the journalist, ultimately, as to whether they, they think that that's important, that they can get that to resonate with audiences. And we, we do that to a certain extent, but we've also got broadcast partners, such as the, the Scottish uh, the Football League in Scotland. We've started a new TV contract with them this year. So we have a duty with them to honour the TV contract and promote our product. So we do a lot of stuff alongside that, which you could argue is shameless plugging, but it's in our interest to promote our live product that's on the telly. And it's in their interest to promote their product, which they've got on our screens. So it works in a number of different ways. Yeah. And so you said you, you cover a range of things, so a lot of stuff with football, but we mentioned that you've also done golf um, and other sports as well. Is there any stories in particular or any kind of events you have to go to that you enjoy covering more than others? Um, like what are the best ones to cover? Is it deadline day? Is it going to a game for Gillette Soccer Saturday? Or do you ever get sent to a game on a Saturday if it's in like on their way up in Calden Beath or something? You thought, oh, I'd rather not go to that game, to be honest, but I've got to for my job. Is that something that happens as well? <laughs> it's a bit unfair in Calden Beath. Um, <laughs> I don't know why they came to my mind. I know this because now no hearts you, have just drawn them or something. If, but... you've never, if you've never been to Central Park, I urge you to go. It is a unique experience. Uh, you've got... It's a stock car track as well. It's got, it's got a stock car track <laughs> right the pitch. And they've got massive tires next to the football pitch. So it's quite an experience. So I, like, people at Cowden Beath are delightful. And the club is a great wee club. That's you in your box, Rory. Rory, you've now landed yourself on a trip to Cowden Beath. <laughs> um, I, I, I like the fact that I've been to every single football ground in the Scottish Professional Football League because I've been able to meet all the different chairmen, players, managers, chief executives, the people who work in these clubs, the little clubs in particular, are delightful um, because they care about their clubs. They're volunteers, a lot of them. And, you know, it's a different feel, a different, you know, f- you know vibe. And when you, you, you ha- if you have a big team, like Rangers or Celtic or Aberdeen or Hearts or Hibs coming to visit these clubs, they get so excited because it's the highlight of their season. Um, and when Rangers went down the leagues a few years ago, we were fortunate enough that we were able to go and visit a lot of these clubs and, you know, get to travel all over the country. It was a bit of a grand tour I managed to do. I went, I went to places like um, Brora and Peterhead and Forest and, you know, Montrose and Arbroath and all these little clubs who've got, you know, a great sort of town community fabric, you know, which, which um, ties up with the football club. So that was, that's great fun. Equally, it's great to go and do a Champions League game at Celtic Park, which I've been fortunate enough to do many times, or go go away with Celtic and go and do you know European games, because that that's a different vibe too. And you get a buzz before these games. You get a real anticipation of what might happen, and it could be something that's going to be memorable. Um, I remember going to the San Siro 
um, with Celtic. And what a great place that was to go and work. And I felt really privileged to do that. And the same when I went to the new camp in Barcelona. And it's an amazing experience. But equally, if you take football away from it, um, I mean, I've worked at the Open Championship a number of times for the, with the golf and I've been to uh, Scotland Rugby Internationals. We don't do a lot of rugby because not, there's not a lot of rugby on Sky Sports at the moment. But the opportunity to go to different places and just be involved in different events, I'm a sport nut like you guys are because I grew up like that and I played loads of different sports. And to be involved with it and to go to events, I, I take great joy in it. And you've got to ultimately go to every job and do the absolute best you can as a professional and try and sell it. And that's part of the job is you're a salesman because you want people to watch what's on Sky and you want to, people to be interested in your, in, your, in your story. So, you know, there are some things which, you know, you go to a press conference sometimes and you think, oh my goodness, what are we going to get out of this? This is not exactly the way I was hoping my day to shape out. But, you know, there's always something interesting happening somewhere and it's up to you a lot of the time to make it interesting. Yeah, I, and I think we all appreciate that. I imagine there could be some, you know, we, we're used to seeing, especially in modern day sport, a lot of uh, a lot a lot of managers and athletes and coaches just give the you know the media answer and and trying to get some some actual content out of that. I imagine can not be the easiest at times, and it's really refreshing when you see people like Ronnie O'Sullivan's comments uh, we saw, we saw this week in the world of snooker and stuff. But um, is there sort of one big sporting memory or one big sort of thing or new story that you broke that you know has always sort of resonated with you it doesn't have to be you know, the biggest one or sort of any sort of ridiculous things you've had to cover is there any one thing that stood out in the sort of 15 years you've been doing it I think on my gravestone I think I will have something etched into it along the lines of he stood outside Ibrox for years and years <laughs> with bacon um, rolls you mentioned it at the start i mean that when rangers went bust that that nobody had ever kind of covered a story like that before it actually changed the way that our newsroom operated because we realized we had to have a, a department that could cover something like that we didn't understand about the financials of it and it was such a big story it affected so many people in in glasgow and across scotland and it was actually around about the time that my eldest son was born as well. And I ended up getting two and a half weeks, three weeks paternity leave. And I went away thinking, oh, thank goodness for that. Um, I'll come back and everything will be all right. And I came back and it was worse. And <laughs> the story just never went away. And it probably never has gone away. Um, but that was just stand-up news doing a live hit every hour, every half hour sometimes for 12 hours straight. And it was utterly exhausting. I don't think we would cover that story now the way we did then. Uh, we would certainly do it in a different way with we would get more support, I would think. But it was a very it was a very challenging thing to do because there was a lot of stuff going on that we didn't understand. Um, but, I mean, the most memorable, probably, the most memorable event I've been at was probably the Ryder Cup at Glen Eagles, and that would have been 2014. And that whole week was probably the best week of my working life because of, of what I was doing inside the ropes, all the access we got, and the event itself was just phenomenally well organised. The weather was good, which always helps. Um, and... We were getting up at three in the morning every day to be on site early doors, but you, you didn't feel tired at all because you were constantly working and, you know, you were running, you know, on a treadmill. And it was only when we came off the treadmill the week, you know, the Monday, the Tuesday afterwards that you just realized, wow, that was phenomenal. So, and I've, you know, I've been lucky enough to, to, to cover open championships, which are similar kind of events in, in some respects, but the Ryder Cup was, was that little notch. 
above it. And I mean, I bro- in, in terms of breaking stories, things you get first, it's quite difficult nowadays to actually break a story and get an exclusive. It is it's challenging in part because of social media, because everybody now has got a, a voice. There are rumbles and rumors everywhere you look and you've got to separate the 95%, which often is erroneous, from the 5% that is fact. And that is a big challenge. And the way that social media operates has completely changed the way we do our job. When I started the job, Twitter didn't exist. Neither did Instagram, uh, I think, or Facebook. And now... Did MySpace or Bebo exist, though? Well, they did. MySpace, (laughs) you might not remember what MySpace was. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But the, the fact is that Sports stars in those days, in the early noughties, they didn't have a voice um, and they didn't post stuff themselves. They've now taken control of the news agenda a lot, a lot of the time and they speak to their mates and then their mates put stuff on Twitter and before you know it, you know, the hair is running and that's the story out there. So it's difficult to get, a, to get an exclusive now, much more difficult than it maybe used to be in the old days. Um, and it's difficult to kind of say that this is absolutely a world exclusive it's very very rare and if you've got a good contact then you know good on you but uh, i've it certainly has changed the way that we report and the way we do our journalism now probably forever yeah i was gonna say social media has obviously had a massive impact on all journalistic outlets and and then because maybe people are likely to have heard stories before or at least heard murmurings before they then get broken on sky sports news or similar outlets i mean it's does that then change the way that you break the story? Do you then have to approach sharing that news in a different way? Well, the key for me, the key principle is get your facts right and make sure you are 100% cast iron guaranteed that what you are reporting is true. Because if it's not, or if there's an element to the story that's wrong, then people are not going to trust you and they're not going to come back to you for news. And ultimately, that, that is the core principle and when you're, especially if you're dealing with a transfer story, for example, you mentioned deadline day. Deadline day is probably the most stressful day of the year. It's not really that enjoyable because there's a lot going on and there's a pressure to get stuff out there. And in Scotland, there's not really been that much that's happened from a transfer perspective for a number of years that's got people hugely excited. Um, I remember Robbie Keane signed for Celtic about 10 years ago and it happened at midnight. And about 3,000 people turned up in the car park at Celtic Park. And that was a massive story. And I can't think of anything that's happened since that's been on that scale, to be honest with you. But it's a stressful day. And when you, do, when you deal with transfers, you've got to make sure that what you've got from one particular side is, is accurate. You've got to make sure that what you're reporting from the other side is accurate. And then you've got the third, the third side, because there's always a third side in there somewhere. Somebody in the middle of the story, more often than not, is telling a fib. And you've got to work out what is the actual story here and where is this going? And there's, there's a bit of an art to that I've always found. And it depends on who you're dealing with, who you're speaking to, because there's agendas everywhere you look in, in, in things like that, especially in transfers where you've got agents involved and clubs maybe not wanting to sell a player. I mean, there's a story at the moment ongoing, which by the time we, you record your episode next summer might still be ongoing, um, <laughs> where Manchester United are trying to sign Jadon Sancho at the moment from Dortmund. Yeah. Um, and I know for a fact, speaking to my colleagues, that that's likely to run and run, but there's three sides to it. You've got the two clubs involved, and then you've got the player side of it. And you've potentially got another side in there of people who are acting as intermediaries and you've got to work out what is important in this story what do people want to know what is factual and what is perhaps a gray area 
And that is ultimately, that comes into experience and an art of asking questions, the right questions, and making sure you don't give too much away as a journalist. And then working out what are people inside the story wanting you to know. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and that Jaden Sancho story has been everywhere. And as you said, I think we're all expecting it to keep going. So we'll, we'll see We'll see if you, you and your colleagues can dig out the truth over the next few weeks. But I'm sure there's a lot of people um, who potentially very jealous of, of you getting to go to all these amazing things, get to visit amazing football stadiums, getting to report on the Ryder Cup and, and just talk about sport every day for a living. And I guess what would be really interesting is to hear about your journey and how you ended up doing this. You said you didn't originally mean to go into sport and what advice you might give to anyone out there who would potentially want to go into a career in journalism and sports journalism and potentially what their first step should be in, in trying to get down that path. Well, I did a degree when I left school. I did a history degree, medieval history, believe it or not. So that's not necessarily got anything to do with sport. As well, but, I was, was, was there much discussion of, uh, of sports in, in the medieval Britain? No, no, not really. No, no, it was mostly people getting shot with arrows and things like that. In um, so, so nothing's changed but, then? That, that is more no. than sport. It's, it's just it's verbal arrows. <laughs> yeah that's true that's a good point the um this the, this the writing skills though were put in place so i've always i've always read lots i've always been a general knowledge enthusiast and i've been interested in current affairs i've always read papers and, and magazines and, and whatnot um and so the, the basic writing skills were in place there to write long you know dissertations and things like that but i always had an idea when i was at school that i wanted to be a journalist and when i finished my degree i did a postgrad at napier in journalism, the one-year postgrad course that they run. And there were a lot of people like me who were in a similar vein, who wanted to go down that route, who'd maybe done a degree and then wanted to do a postgrad. And at the same time, part of the postgrad course was that you were encouraged to go out and find work experience. And I had work experience previously at my local newspaper. And that was what it was all about. It was about just going out, finding stories, developing them. If you were able to go into a local radio station or a local newspaper and get a bit of experience for a week, great. And working for free, you know, I, I I don't want to generalize completely, but there there is an impression nowadays that it's a much more difficult for for young people to get jobs. There's much more. There's many more degrees out there, but there is an impression out there in our industry that a lot of people will come into it and think that they can just walk into a job, and it doesn't work like that. Unfortunately, you have to do the hard yards and go to a lot of these events, go to press conferences, go and find stories, and you might. You know, you, you might not necessarily be getting well recompensed for it. You might get your travel expenses if you're lucky. That was the way it worked in, you know, in, in back in the day. And I don't think much of it has changed because ultimately, if you're good enough, you'll find your way in, in journalism. If you've got an eye for a story and a nose for something that's going on, you'll be able to dig it out. And I was fortunate that I was in um, doing a work placement uh, in Glasgow. And I wasn't, I was sitting around doing not very much. I was basically making coffee one week. And I was told that Sky were looking for someone to come in and do a couple of shifts for them and basically be a runner. And I went and knocked on the door, said, look, here I am. Do you need any help for free for a week? And I was asked, I was asked to go and do a couple of shifts. And one shift turned into two, which turned into three. And then before I knew it, I was doing three or four a week. And I was getting paid for it, albeit not great. You know, little bits here and there. And then that turned into essentially a regular job on a regular basis. And I, I basically got that regular job because I was prepared to just travel and just do it. And, you know, I was just keen and I was totally naive. I'll, I'll add that as well. I was completely naive. I didn't know what I was doing and I was learning on the job. We didn't have social media. 
So I, I didn't have my nose in a phone all the time. I was I had my eyes and ears open, and I just listened. And it's a bit old school, I guess, in that respect, in the way that you know I, I learned the ropes. It doesn't work like that now. I get that, but I would encourage anyone who wants to be a journalist to listen to experience and to appreciate that you know you don't know it all. And because you're on social media, just because you've got a voice, that doesn't mean necessarily that what you think is right. I think you've got to listen to all different kinds of opinion different the whole kaleidoscope of of fact and opinion is really important and i think us as a society we don't do enough of that generally at the moment but getting away from that that was basically how i got into it and that's been it ever since and you could argue that i am slightly institutionalized having been at sky for 15 years but i have seen a lot of change and i know how a lot of my peers work at different news organizations and you know they they have kind of come in different right routes i know a lot of good newspaper writers who've basically started from the bottom up working for nothing because but they do it because they love it and i think if you're a journalist you do it because you love it as well i think that's one of the key points too and you've got to love it that will resonate with with a lot of people um yeah, as Roy said, there's a lot of people who are jealous out there of the access to you, but because we only see the tip of the iceberg, uh, and they and they're jealous because they love their sport as well. So any of us who love sport um, are willing to to commit and put the hard yards in. So um, so you know you you certainly paid your dues, and and hopefully we can sort of see lots more of you breaking lots of stories and telling us a lot more what's going on. And and uh, see you outside Ibrox sometime see you, soon. See you outside Ibrox sometime soon. <laughs> As Rory said, um, right. Well, we, we thought, seeing as you haven't had enough pressure in in your in, in in the world right now of your job, sort of presenting to to the masses, we thought he'd put you through a real pressurized situation of the uh, utility players' gauntlet of questions. So, are you ready for ready for forty five seconds of random questions? Yeah, go for it. This is going to give us a real insight to what uh, the the real Charles Patterson and journalists are like. So, Roy, if you want to set up the time, there's no time to run the gauntlet. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Stones. Is there life on another planet? No. Red or brown sauce? Brown. Which Spice Girl are you? What? Uh. Uh. uh baby Spice. <laughs> VAR. Good or bad idea? Good idea. Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings. Too hot or too cold? Uh. Too cold. First album you ever bought? Oh man, I can't remember. Um, pro- something probably something by Genesis, I think. <laughs> uh, where do you go on a skiing holiday or a beach holiday? Skiing holiday. Genesis. We said showing your age earlier, but I think yeah. that's really showing your age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it was a Genesis album. Which, which, I, I listen to a lot of my, let you, you, like you will, you will appreciate that your parents have a rather large influence on your musical taste, both good and bad. <laughs> Um, so I actually I'm I'm not afraid to say this because I've revealed it previously in a chat with somebody but um, and I have a a quite eclectic music taste but my dad's music taste was questionable at best of times but I actually um, I'm actually a secret ABBA fan as well so there uh, there's, there's no reason to be secret about being an ABBA fan. We yeah, we all we all have got a place for ABBA in our hearts. I think Rory's a massive ABBA fan. <laughs> I crank up in the house, and my wife just looks at me like I'm insane. And uh, now the boys like it too. My two little boys like it too. That's quite funny. So. so you're winning the battle in your house for the for the music remote. Absolutely. When they get in the car, they say, "Can we listen to your songs, please?" So. <laughs> um, although I do have one for brown over red sauce. Yeah, big time. Anytime. 
I'm not on, a on all fan. meals, not not just a local chippy, all meals. Chippy, chippy sauce or brown sauce every day of the week. And actually, a brown sauce on a bacon roll, you can't beat that. Charles, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Great to have the insight of, of sort of how, how your world as a journalist uh, sort of operates. Uh, and I'm sure we've all appreciated that. And, and best of luck as sort of sport comes back, more and more prevalence as we get past COVID. And, and we look forward to seeing you on our screen soon. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Transfer deadline day is not really that enjoyable for for reporters. You know, as us football fans, we glue ourselves to our screens back and see the sort of stressful nature. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it doesn't surprise me too much that transfer deadline day isn't that enjoyable for the people working because it is. You're just expected to have so much information so quickly all the time. It doesn't work like that, as Charles outlined there. And not surprised about some of these things, but really fascinating to hear how it all works and to. And also to hear about his life, it sounds amazing. I want to go to the to the San Siro and work on the Champions League night. That'd be the absolute dream. I know, and, and it sounds like you're going to do a trip to Cowden Beef. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we need to speak to Charles about if he's ever going to be reporting up there. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure Hearts have drawn Cowden Beef in the League Cup. So if they allow fans back in the stadium anytime soon, which I doubt they will, but if they do, I promise I'll go. Absolutely, but I think you know, great insight from Charles in terms of looking at different aspects of sports and and the the work that goes in behind the scenes to get it on our screen. Um, so as mentioned last week, uh, we didn't have time for our, our top threes. So uh, rolled over to this week and, and it's going to be top three sporting events or fixtures or, or tournaments that we, we want to go and see live and be, and be part of. Um, I can't remember who, who's due to go first or second Rory, but I'm going to take uh, the, I'm going to take a stance that I'm going to go first because that hopefully means I'm going to get a win. So, um, so three sort of very different ones here. Um, the first one, I have no real allegiance to the people involved, but I would love to go to a packed house. I don't know where it is, but one of the teams I want to be at home and at the moment be very difficult for this to happen, but India-Pakistan won the international cricket match or T20. Just the utter passion and re- almost religious fa- fanaticism that cricket instills in that part of the world. And, and with all the sort of political history between the countries and everything, we've seen sport being a real powerful tool to, to help build bridges. But hopefully that can be like that one day for, for that part of the world. But just having those two teams go at each other and, and to witness the noise and the you know sheer passion that comes with that would, would be something I'd love to experience uh, my other two are a bit more personal in terms of things that would mean something to me um, number two would be going to a Ryder Cup watching a Ryder Cup live um, I just think I'm, I'm a, I keep saying a massive team sport man and, and seeing especially from a European perspective individual players who week in week out are, are fending for themselves competing for themselves coming together for a common goal and finding that unity and and it's the only time we kind of get to see Europe being represented as a continent. I almost like this continental, you know, clashes. I think, I think it's brilliant seeing sort of teams coming together. I think that, that's an awesome element to it. But I think being live there and, and golf, which, you know, has this shh mentality about it a lot of the time, you know, seeing actual sort of supporters getting behind it is, is, is brilliant. And, and number one would be going on a Lions rugby tour and watching the Lions. Again, the same element of, of four countries coming together into one unity one team for a common goal and going you know anyway we have had to pick one probably in New Zealand because of of what rugby is in New Zealand and going over there and being part of 
uh, watching that whole experience. I've, I've always wanted to go on a Lions tour. I've, I've watched all of them. I've been up in the middle of the night, uh, you know, watching them. And and it's not very often that you sometimes get to support some of the, the rugby players from, from the other home nations. But even in, in those times, I, I, I'm so gripped with it. I, I get right behind them. And, and to see that live would be, to me, my number one. Yeah. I mean, I think I would love to go to all three of those. So I think they are, yeah, fantastic picks. All great, iconic sporting sporting events, which would be fantastic to be at. I've gone for some similar, some different. Um, my number three is a bit of a different one in terms of maybe not for like the passion, but it is passion, but like for like the loudness and the adrenaline. And it's actually going to be totally opposite. It's the crucible. I would, I get transfixed by the crucible absolutely every year like a lot of people do the world snooker at the crucible and i think it's a lot of time that that, i think for a lot of people it's the only time of the year they watch snooker and then there's lots of massive major events in snooker and there's lots of snooker played all year round but kind of having it plastered across the bbc for two weeks obviously it's it's being played at the moment but normally across easter and having kind of these greats of the game that you you recognize but don't see a lot of and watching them i think it's fascinating i think it's a great spectacle it's a fascinating watch seeing how these players think out and play this game that is so ridiculously hard to make it look so ridiculously easy i'd love to get like into the stadium and watch like the kind of nitty-gritty action of the crucible in in full in full form during championship week and there's so much around it because it's like loads of tables exhibition that goes on throughout the theater it's not just a kind of main hall action and you see all these snooker greats putting on shows and you get to stand behind the commentators and it's this whole spectacle that i'd love to go and be a part of uh, at some time in my life and it's only in sheffield so hopefully i'll make it one day but um so that's my number three and number two it's even closer to home it's in glasgow it's, it's the old firm derby in a similar maybe I don't know if it's quite the comparable but in a similar sense for that india pakistan kind of raw passion that kind of kind of almost like it's a religion for them you feel the same with the football teams in glasgow and, and the old firm derby just in terms of passion and kind of adrenaline i, I just think it can't be matched certainly in, in british football but i think in european football it's hard to match it and i think actually because the football often isn't quite as good as some of the european counterparts that almost makes it better because it's a more it's more raw and i and i would say i'd love to experience the atmosphere i think potentially at celtic park as much as i I'm not a fan of Celtic, but I just think that it's such a fantastic stadium and the fans in Celtic Park are just so loud. It'd be a great place to go to an old firm derby. And my number one, I've gone with golf as well, but I've not gone with the Ryder Cup. I've gone with the Masters just because it is such a unique sporting, just sporting spectacle with Augusta. I mean, it's the only major championships that's hosted at the same place every year. Um, and and it's got that unique element about it because of it. And, and also because it is so hard to get get tickets you either need to be very very rich or be very very patient it seems like to get on the get on the waiting list but um to get the opportunity to go see the masters at augusta just once would be such a dream country for me it's it, you watch it every year and it's so iconic to watch it every year and to actually be there in amongst in amongst the kind of rolling hills of the augusta national and sat by the 12th and 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 see all these famous holes in real life and, and they say when you go it's even more hilly than it looks, which is just sounds sounds phenomenal, and I and I and I can't wait to hopefully one day go to the Masters. So yeah, that's my number one. 
Oh, as ever, it's over to you now, the listeners and the fans, to uh, make a decision on, on who has the best top three. I'm sure you'll make a wise decision. Uh, I went first, so there's no point probably doing this poll, but um, there we go. Um, thanks very much, uh, as ever, for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. Please go over to our, our Twitter and Instagram uh, pages. Yeah, they are at Players Utility on Twitter and Utility underscore Players on Instagram. We'd love to have feedback and hear from you, so uh, you'll also find our polls there. So, as ever, uh, I've been Ali and he's been Roy with the Utility Players, and we hope to see you next week, and everyone stay safe.